And we're going to be looking at, uh, actually, we're going to be looking at Acts 10, 9, 23, or actually, yeah, 10, verse 9 to verse 23. So we've got quite a bit to cover, and uh, if you've uh, listened to me teach, you know that it's going to be a supernatural miracle for me to get through all of that. Um, but I'm going to break it up into two sections. Uh, last week we did look at Acts 10, 1 through 8. We kind of, last week we kind of re-engaged in our study series of the book of Acts. We've been kind of looking through it as a church. We've been going through it since we planted this church in February of 2012. And so we've just kind of been marinating in chapter 10 for a little bit, but it's quite extraordinary. Um, and, you know, if you have missed any of the prior weeks, especially last week, um, I want to encourage you to, to go to our website and to take a listen. Uh, you know, we're kind of narrating and expounding on each verse, and so it's pretty important that, to, you know, if you want to know the series and what's going on in it, that you listen to all the sermons and stuff like that. So please take a visit there if you would be so kind. It'd be good for you. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Peter's vision and submission. Those would be the two themes that are going to come out of the text today. Um, and like I said, I've, been, I've uh, divided our text into two sections. Section 1 will cover uh, verses 9 to 16, and then section 2 will cover 17 to 23. Let's begin together with a word of prayer, and then we will get right to work. Sound good? Yeah? Make sure, please make sure that you have your cell phones or whatever you have with you silenced or shut off. There's nothing worse than that thing screaming who let the dogs out right in the middle of the sermon or whatever. Father God, we are about to embark on a journey through this text, and we have dull minds, <laughs> goofy thoughts, we are distracted, I mean, we're just people, we're sinners saved by grace. And um, we have a strong propensity towards distraction and all of these things, Lord. And so we pray that you'd be merciful this morning, Lord. Somehow lock in our attention. May we just fix ourselves, our gaze upon you right now, Lord Jesus, knowing that you are the preacher, Lord. Uh, I am not the preacher. You are the preacher. In fact, you're the leader of this church, Jesus. You're the leader of your church. You're the head. And so we want to hear from you today, Lord. We do not want to hear from Phil or anyone else. And so speak to us today, Lord. And that means you're going to have to bridle Phil's tongue. <laughs> you're going to have to guard my lips and just give me your thoughts and your thoughts alone and your word and your word alone. And open our hearts to it today. Uh, it really does no good to keep coming to church over and over and over and hearing all these sermons and not put it to use. We need to be doers of the word. That's what you've commanded. We need to listen, we need to apply, we need to be changed, we need to be put forth some effort ourselves. We need to do what you say. And so help us to do that today. I know it's going to be tough today. The text is a tough text. It's really hard for me. I pray that you would convict your people here. And that through that conviction, change would come. And through that change, action would come. And through that action, joy to us and the benefits of the gospel to this community. We lift this all up to you this morning, Lord Jesus. Come and be with us. May we praise you through this time and just be awestruck by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, 9 to 16, I'll read it. You ready? If you're ready, say, I'm ready. Okay, half of you are ready. All right. It says, the next day, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him and said this, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up to heaven at once. As we enter into this text, we need to realize that after Cornelius received an angelic vision and sent two servants and a soldier to Joppa to fetch Peter from Simon the Tanner's house, verse 9 tells us, this is what's happened in our prior text, Cornelius, this Roman centurion, got a vision and he sent these servants down to Yopa to find Peter at Simon the Tanner's house. Verse 9 tells us that Peter went up on, as these guys were traveling down and approaching the city, Peter went up on Simon the Tanner's rooftop to pray during the sixth hour. First century Middle Eastern architecture was rather interesting in that it, most of the homes were built with like stairwells or stairways on the outside of the house that went up to the roof. And what people would do is they would kind of turn the rooftop into this kind of cool little habitat for prayer and for, you know, especially in this particular area where you're right, you know, you're basically right along the Mediterranean. So you've got those Mediterranean breezes, but they would take these rooftops and they would use them as places for solitude and, and things like that and prayer and stuff like that. And uh, it, it seems that uh, the rooftop would be probably the quietest place, the place where you could actually be alone and focus your thoughts on the Lord or whatever you're doing. The roofing material consisted of like crisscrossing, because I've always thought about that, right? Architecture back in those days was not like buildings today with girders and all that. And so I thought, how do they walk around on it, right? I mean, why didn't they fall through? But they had all these crisscrossing beams like done in a X like this, and they would join all these beams, and then they would cover the roofs with like a very thick thatch, and then sometimes they would even put like a tar-like substance. So it was very, very durable. It would be able to hold the weight of, of several people. And so uh, we can kind of see in our mind's eye, we can envision Peter going up, you know, he goes outside of the house, and he goes up these stairs, and he gets up on the roof, and he's going up there to pray. A great time for him to pray. It's sturdy. He's got the Mediterranean breeze. Beautiful place to pray and maybe to look over the ocean and, and stuff like that. Now, Luke tells us that he did this, that he did this uh, during one of the Jewish hours of prayer. Luke called it the sixth hour. Uh, there were like three times during the day when the Jews would pray. As far as I know, they probably still do it today. As far as I can tell, Jennifer would be able to answer that. A lot of people, actually, a lot of different religions pray during different times of the day. And the, the Jews had three hours, and one of them was at noon. And it wasn't just, Lord, bless the meal, you know, that kind of thing that we do at lunch. 
Um, but it was actually like a designated time of prayer. And so here's Peter. He goes up on the roof, finds a nice spot up there during the sixth hour, 12 noon, and he's up there praying. Now, while enjoying the solitude, those nice Mediterranean breezes, and the Lord's presence in prayer, Peter became hungry. Makes sense, right? We're talking lunchtime. We're talking the sixth hour. We're talking 12 noon. And so he was hungry. Uh, but he knew that his, the text says, that he knew that his host was downstairs preparing the meal, so he went ahead and remained up on the rooftop and, and prayed, even though his stomach was probably, you know, doing that whole thing. Mine does. I don't know about you guys, but I, man, if I don't get my meals, like, right close to the time that I need them, you know, I, get, I, get, I can get savage. I'll start chewing on somebody's arm, you know. And so, it, and, and how difficult is it to maybe focus on anything when you're hungry? You know, especially in prayer, you're going to go pray and your stomach's tore up and you're hungry. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do, but he's up there and he's doing it. He's honoring the Lord with that prayer time and he's up there doing it. And it was lunchtime and he was hungry, but he knew that they were downstairs getting some, some grubs, some vittles ready. I don't know what they had, lamb kebabs or something, but they were down there throwing it down. Now, during prayer... The text says that Peter fell into a trance. Okay, we're not talking like trance music, right? None of that. He fell into a trance, and in the trance, he saw a vision. He saw a vision in the trance, during the trance time. The vision he saw, in the vision, he saw the heavens opened, and he saw what appeared to be like a great sheet lowering down from heaven. So this is sort of the vision that he has. And the sheet that was coming down may have looked very similar to maybe a sail on one of the boats that might have been passing by. Remember, he's up on this rooftop. He's got a great vantage point, viewpoint, vista point. He's looking out over the sea. He's praying, and there's probably boats passing by with sails. And so this sheet, these sails, you know, it might have been like a correlation there or something like that, a connection. But it probably looked like maybe one of the sails from one of the boats on the water, that might have been like a parallel there, or maybe even like a tablecloth or like a picnic blanket. doesn't say it had all the little red, you know, white crisscrosses on it or anything like that, but it may have been like the sail, it may have been like a tablecloth, may have been like a picnic uh, blanket or something of that nature. And the text says that when this great, and it's called great sheet, so this thing was big. This wasn't just, you know, like like a napkin. This thing was like the vision. It was a very large piece of material coming down because it's called the great sheet. So while this thing's coming down, it basically comes down upon the earth or in front of him, maybe over the sea by its four corners, as if like you were pinning down a tent or something like that. The four corners get lowered. And so this thing comes down and it's kind of pinned down in front of him. He sees this. As Peter gazed at it, as he looked upon it, probably marveling, probably blown away. How often do we get these visions and things? Not often. So he's probably thinking, wow, this is incredible. But while he's gazing upon it, he noticed that within it or upon it were all kinds of animals and, and reptiles and birds. They were just all over this thing. And um, Interestingly, though, there's kind of, you know, there's some meaning behind all of this, and we're going to get to all that, but I'd like to just talk about some things from the Old Testament perspective first so we can get a better idea of what's playing out here. In the Old Testament, it basically, the Old Testament identifies people, animals, and objects in like four different ways, 
okay? Um, as, and these ways are like holy, pure, common, and unclean. So if you look at the Old Testament, if you study the Old Testament, it describes people, objects, animals, and things of those nature as holy, pure, common, and unclean. Now this all brings tremendous meaning into this vision. Now, I want to define each of these things uh, to some degree, not exhaustively, but just a little bit in an effort to help us better understand this vision and what these animals represent and, and how this plays out. So I'm going to talk about these, these different categories, if you will, or whatever we want to call it. Let's talk about the holy. The Old Testament refers to people, animals, and objects as holy. Holy people in the Old Testament would be like Israel's priests, okay, the Levites, the tribe of uh, the Levite tribe or the Levite priests, holy in reference to people in the Old Testament would be Israel's priests or also like men, men who had been set apart to serve God like certain prophets or kings. Okay, we're talking holy here, holy people, priests, we're talking men who have been set apart to serve God like prophets and, and kings, um, Maybe like, yeah, like the priests for sure. And then like, have you guys ever heard of a Nazarite? Yeah, Nazarites were considered to be set apart from like birth. Like they were these folks that had to abstain from wine and cutting their hair and doing all these things and stuff like that. I think John the Baptist might have been a Nazarite. Um, so, but Nazarites too were considered to be like holy people. So we have priests, we have those who are called to be prophets, kings, and then we have Nazarites. And, and really in the Old Testament, that's about it. You know, that, that is, where the, the moniker holy, that is, a, is, is attributed and ascribed to those types of people only. Obviously to God. And then holy animals, holy animals. Holy animals were animals that were set apart to be used for sacrifice. Okay, these would be what we see in the Old Testament as unblemished animals. These animals were set apart, they were called holy, they were considered holy, and they were used for sacrificial reasons. And there were also animals that were set apart, considered holy, uh, because they were reserved for holy people, like a king's donkey. I think King David said something about King Solomon when Solomon, you know, he was like kind of prophetically speaking about Solomon, and he talked about this donkey, this holy donkey that had been set apart for his son, something of that nature. And so you have holy animals. Holy animals are animals that are set apart for sacrifice and maybe set apart for holy purposes and those purposes alone. If you had a donkey that was set apart for holy purposes, maybe to be ridden by a king, an amazing king, that donkey could not be ridden by anyone else. If it was, then it wouldn't be holy and set apart for that one purpose. And so you kind of get the, the, the gist of it here. And then what about holy objects? Holy objects, the tabernacle and its items, okay? The fixtures and things that went inside of it. But this tent, this mobile worship center, if you will, it was called holy. It was considered to be holy ground, a holy place with holy items. And then obviously the thing that you know, came after the tabernacle is the temple. The temple was called holy. It is a holy place and on the high mountain you know, and all these things. And so that's a holy object there. So we have holy people, holy animals, holy objects. And what about pure? When we think of pure, we tend to think of holy. Not in the Old Testament, per se. I mean, some of these things interchange, but pure is a little different. What about pure people? Who would be considered to be pure people in the Old Testament? Well, the Jews. The Jews are often referred to as the pure people, the people that have been purified. 
So they're usually called the pure people. And also that would also cross over into Jewish proselytes or converts. Someone who transfers from a Gentile pagan religion or what have you and becomes a Jew and has to be circumcised and baptized into that whole thing and go through a process, they would be considered, after going through that process, pure. So pure people would be the Jews and Jewish converts. What about pure animals? Pure animals. Pure animals were those animals that are or have been in the Old Testament identified as food for the Jews according to the law. There are pure animals that they could eat. Not that they've been made pure by the Lord per se, but that they are just considered pure, meaning that they're okay to eat. And so you have pure animals. And then you have pure objects. And this is kind of a fascinating thing, but guess what is often called a pure object in the Old Testament would be the land of Israel. Does that mean that it's completely pure and it's not defiled by anything? No, it doesn't mean that, but it's just in the Old Testament. It's considered to be a pure place, a pure territory, a pure land. And then also, another thing within that land are those Jewish households. They were considered to be pure or identified as pure. So we have holy, we have pure, and then we have what gets, gets really interesting is we have what's called common. Okay, you've got holy, you've got pure, and now we have common. So it's like we're going away from this idea of holiness and going away from this idea of purified. So we have common. I'm telling you, this all plays into this vision. That's why we're going through it. Common people. Common people are Gentiles or non-Jewish people, translation, a.k.a. the rest of humanity. We are common people. Unless you're of Jewish descent, Old Testament view, you'd be considered a common person. So common people are everyone in the world that's not Jewish. Common people. Common animals. Common, common animals would be the animals that common people eat. Makes sense, right? Oh, that's the common group over there. They eat the common animals. You've got the common animals. You've got uh, animals that the common people eat. You've got animals which were not good enough, okay? This is another example of common animals. Animals that were not good enough, that didn't make the cut to be sacrificed to God, those blemished animals, okay? Common animals, animals that were not good enough to be sacrificed to God. And also, another example, animals which were not chosen and set apart to be used by holy people. So you get this idea that it's like all the other animals in the world that, you, you know, that Jews aren't supposed to eat, that common people eat, and all these examples and stuff. Now, common objects, self-explanatory, common objects would be objects that common people use. Regular, ordinary households, regular, ordinary animals for transportation, regular animals for eating, regular blankets in your house and scarves, whatever it is, it's all common because those things belong to common people. So you're getting an idea here. And then we have probably one of the most fascinating uh, categories would be unclean. Unclean. Now, according to the Old Testament, though, unclean and common can mean the same thing depending upon the context. In other words, unclean and common are often synonymous. Now, you will hear some of the shared meanings and similarities as I go through this you know, these examples in this, you'll be thinking, well, that sounds a lot like the common, and they do. 
How about unclean people? Who are unclean people? The non-religious. People that are agnostic. People that, you know, had nothing to do with any form of religion. Not even pagan religion. They were just kind of in the middle and they didn't give in to religion or follow or ascribe to any religion. Another example would be those who do not fear and honor the Lord. Obviously, the irreligious in a Jewish sense. People that did not honor, love the Lord, follow the Lord, live their lives for him. Those would be unclean people. Um, also, another example is those who have touched a dead animal or a dead person. Uh, and, and interestingly, that touching a, a dead body or a dead animal, dead person, whatever, could render a Jew unclean for about seven days. So anyone who worked in the mortuary, you know, was probably unclean 24-7. Uh, another example of unclean people would be people with incurable illnesses or diseases. Um, uh, in some cases, we, we would see lepers would belong to that category. You know, if a person has this ailment and it, it just never goes away, then that person in the Jewish mind in the Old Testament is considered to be unclean. And then another striking example are Gentiles, again, non-Jewish people. They're common, but they can also be seen as unclean. They don't even have to do anything extraordinarily dirty to be considered unclean. They're just Gentile people. In fact, the Jews in Jesus' day called them dogs. They called us dogs, man. What's up with that? Or not cool, right? That's how they rolled back then. Gentiles. And then you have, which is another example of Gentiles, you have pagans. And what pagan basically means is someone who, you know, is involved in a false religion. Someone who worships Baal. Someone who worships Molech. You know, somebody who worships a false god, Dagon. You know, those would be not just Gentiles or common, but they would be considered unclean, man. They are following some sort of crazy, ungodly religion. And then what about unclean animals? Another parallel here with common, but the animals, uh, unclean animals would be animals that the Jews cannot use for food. They could not use common animals, which sometimes is paralleled with unclean animals. There were some animals that were just considered to be unclean, according to the law. And so animals that the Jews could not eat or use for food. Um, another example would be animals that have been sacrificed to pagan gods, to pagan idols. Those animals would have been considered unclean. Um, and then also unclean animals would represent the sick animals, the lame animals, the diseased animals, and even dead animals. Even dead animals. So those are the unclean animals. And then what about unclean objects? <laughs> Gentile and pagan territories. <laughs> what does that mean? It means the rest of the world. If it's not happening right there in little old Israel, man, everything beyond that is considered to some degree to be, yes, common, but also heightening it, unclean, man. Anything outside of this, the land of Israel, this holy, pure land, anything beyond that, man, is considered, was considered to be unclean. Everything outside of that territory which would include another example, Gentile and pagan households. You know, the house of someone who isn't Jewish would be considered unclean by Jewish people. Pagan temples, man, those places were seen as just a, a horrific place of uncleanliness. Unclean, a pagan temple. You think of that, 
you know, big temple in Ephesus and those places. Man, the Jews, I tell you what, they wouldn't even look at that thing through a, you know, through a set of binoculars. They were afraid their eyes would, you know, well up with unholiness. Oh, I looked at the temple, you know, I can't do it. I mean, it just, it just extraordinary. Unclean objects, pagan territories, pagan households, pagan temples, Gentile places, and then obviously the objects that Gentiles and pagans use. They would be considered unclean uh, and even common. So there's a, a connection there. Isn't it amazing that all of this stuff is represented in the law in the Old Testament? Now, the Jews tended to take, according to tradition, some of these things to all new heights. Okay, they layered meaning onto these things and took them to extraordinary levels. But these were like the restrictions. And this is way, the way that the land was viewed, whether holy and, and you know, common and unclean and all of these things. And all kind of plays into this vision. So do you have a sense of the terminology and the categories? Now, in Peter's vision, in Peter's vision, there were all kinds of animals on this sheet, on this sail, on this picnic blanket. And Peter could see, okay, as he's looking at this great sheet... And as he's looking and examining the animals, and he probably sees giraffes. I mean, he, there is a ton in the Greek. It says there's just tons of different animals. Like, it almost gives the idea that every kind of animal in the world is represented on this sheet. We're looking at a big, flat zoo with no cages. Okay? That's kind of what's going on here. And as he's looking out, as he's examining all the animals, Peter himself can tell that there were holy, pure Common and unclean animals on this sheet. He could see the categories. He could see, ah, oh, there's some of those holy animals. There's some of the other types. There's those common ones. There's the ones that we can eat. There's the ones that we can't eat. There's the ones that we can't. I don't know if there were dead animals or any of that. But literally, he's in his mind, he's pondering, wow, look at this. There are all sorts of different animals. And some of them are okay to mess with. And some of them are not okay to mess with, according to my tradition and law. He sees this, and, and while he's looking out, while he's looking out, he hears something that's extraordinary, that literally just jacks him up, this command that comes from heaven. I mean, it just jacks him up, because he's looking out, and he sees all these animals. He knows these are off limits, these aren't, these are cool, these are not. Don't even look at that jackal. This is what's going through his mind, and what does he hear as he's examining? He hears this, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Smorgy! That's what he hears. He's at Lee's Chinese you know, buffet. Go for it. Kill something and eat it. Kill them all and eat them all. That's what he's thinking. That's what he hears. That's, and now he's thinking, are you kidding me? Well, there's holy animals and there's, there's, there's animals that are okay for me to do that. Well, this is what's going through his mind. There's animals that I shouldn't touch. I shouldn't even look at. This is a startling thing that he, that he hears here. Now, who said it to him? <laughs> who said this to him? Was it an angel? Was it the same angel that, you know, vis uh, visited Cornelius and spoke to Cornelius? No. No, it was the Lord. Look at what Peter said. He responded by saying, ah, Lord. And if you have a red letter, you'll notice that it's in red letters. This is Jesus that's speaking to him. Jesus that's speaking to him. It was the Lord. My little red letter Bible shows me that. Now, once, at once, Peter knew, at once, Peter knew that the vision was meant to depict some sort of dining table with all kinds of animals 
as his food. I mean, when he heard, he saw it, he's marveling at it, he has no idea what it means. Look at all these animals, and then the voice from heaven tells him, kill and eat. He's thinking, it's lunchtime and I'm hungry. It's amazing how he gets a vision that correlates with his own predicament at the moment. God knows us really well, doesn't he? Kill and eat. And so now he's thinking, okay, so this represents a, a, a buffet, if you will. He recognized that it was some sort of a buffet kind of thing going on here, and he was literally shocked. He may have been hungry, but he was more shocked than hungry. He was actually horrified. He could not wrap his mind around how the Lord would command him to eat animals that did not square with the Old Testament dietary restrictions. And so what did he say? Paraphrased, no. No, Lord, I will not do it. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. You see the classifications there? We have common and unclean animals out here. And he's saying, I ain't doing it. I'm not going to eat these animals. This was a bold rejection of a divine command. A divine imperative has been issued by the Lord. Kill and eat. Now, keep in mind that this command was audible to him. He heard the voice. He didn't have to guess if he heard a voice. I wonder if I just heard him say, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He didn't have to speculate. He didn't have to wonder. The voice to him was audible. He heard it as clear as day. There was no mistaking the voice. It was perfectly audible and clear, and yet he rejected it. Why? Why did he reject the voice? Why did he reject the imperative? Why did he reject the command? Because Peter had zealously kept the dietary laws all his life. Believing such kosher commitment was required by the Lord. His strict adherence reflected his devotion to pleasing God. How could he immediately throw all that aside without assaulting his conscience, so sensitive to dietary duty? And then the Lord spoke to him, right? He's like, no way, I can't do it, man. I've got this lifelong tradition of never doing that. I can't do it. And then the Lord, this is what he's pondering, and this is what he's even saying, no way. And then the Lord spoke to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This isn't like, well, gee, Peter, I, I know that you've got all these traditions and this is really tough for you, but I think that you need to go ahead and do that. This is, hey, this is a rebuke in the original language. Hey, don't call common what I've made clean. This is a rebuke that we see here. Peter was probably the number one abuked apostle, was he not? That guy got blown out every third Tuesday. I mean, he just, he was like me. He was impetuous. He had a big stinking mouth. It cost him dearly. I've been written up before in ministry. I know what it's like. I tend to say things that are just stupid. And so this is a rebuke. This is targeted. This is like, hey, do not call common what I have made clean. Very simple, simple rebuke. The verb made clean is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the OT. It is used for pronouncements 
of the priests concerning persons who had been impure and who, after the appropriate purification, were declared clean. Leviticus 13, 6, 13, 13, and 13, 17. A little example of what I'm explaining to you. If a person had a skin rash, he or she would be brought to the priest where he would look at it to determine if it was the type of rash uh, that would render a person unclean. And they actually could judge like, okay, that's a leprous rash, and so eh, you're unclean. But they would be brought to the priest, and he would examine, not a, not a physician, they would go to the priest, and the priest would look at this lesion or whatever, and he would determine if this person was unclean and needed to be removed and put into a leper colony or into some place of seclusion where they were separated from the rest of the, rest of the community or tribe or whatever. But if that person was at the leper colony or wherever they were and that lesion cleared up, began to clear up, they would then be brought back to the priest. And the priest would examine it again to determine whether it's going away and if it's safe. And at that point, the priest could say, oh, it shrunk up and, you know, it's, it's basically gone. You're good. You're good. Now he would render them unclean. So it was up to a priest to render someone unclean or clean. It was solely upon their responsibility, their ability to do that. And in the original language, that is what's playing out here. You get this vision of God-like making available the common. He's making the common pure for use in the same way that an Old Testament priest would render someone clean or unclean. And that's kind of the visual that we get there. Pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Now, in a similar way, Jesus, our great high priest, has deemed to save people from every tribe and tongue according to the purposes of God the Father. In other words, in terms of salvation, there are no ethnic boundaries. And this was the Lord's point right here. This vision has very little to do with food and has everything to do with evangelism. So it was offensive to the Lord for Peter to refer Check this out. It was offensive to the Lord for Peter to refer to non-Jewish people as what? Common or unclean. Now there's a great warning right here in this text for us. We should not label people as this or that. Especially non-believing people. The scriptures say that they are image bearers. The scriptures say that they need Jesus Christ. That's it. You have image bearers who are fallen in sin who need Jesus. That's it. And it is our task and responsibility as a church to evangelize them, not to unlawfully or wrongfully characterize them and dismiss them, which is what we see playing out in the text. So what happens next? After the rebuke, Peter submitted and ran off to Caesarea and did his job. Wait a minute, it doesn't say that in the text. No, actually it says that shows us that Peter still didn't submit. 
so ingrained, so ingrained were the dietary regulations into his life that he still could not comprehend what was happening. This took place a total of three times. Three times, rise, kill, and eat. I won't. Rise, kill, and eat. I won't. Rise, kill, and eat. I won't. I, I can't do that. I can't deal with common and, un, you know, and, and unclean things. Don't call them those things. Three times this plays out if you look at in your text. Peter still didn't submit. Remember what happened in the courtyard of the high priest the night Jesus was arrested and judged? What did Peter do then? He denied the Lord three times. Well, I'm starting to see a pattern here, Peter. You did it back there in the, in the, in the, you know, the high priest's courtyard. I remember that time where you told me you were going to stop me from completing my mission, and I had to tell you, Satan, get behind me. That was strike one. Strike two, denied me three times. And think, here's strike three, Peter. What are you doing? Three times he denies the Lord right here in this text. So ingrained were those traditions and laws and rules and regulations, those dietary stipulations. Aren't you glad that God is not a three-strikes God? Have you ever thought about that? No, when you sin, he takes your sin and casts it as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't even call strikes. He doesn't even play baseball. <laughs> if he was a three-strike, and I'll tell you what, there's some religions out there where you have gods that are three, you just talk to Muhammad and ask him about Allah, that's a strike meister. That guy's an incredible pitcher. That God right there denounces you every time you sin. What a dreadful religion to be a part of. Did you know the symbol for Islam are scales? Good on this side, bad on this side, hopefully this will outweigh. We don't have a God like that. We have a God who is unceasing in his mercy, long-suffering, patient, merciful, gracious. Oh, that's strike one, Phil. Well, that's what my wife does. That's strike one, Phil. That's what I do to people. You ever do that? You know, you haven't forgiven someone if you bring up the issue later when they do it again. You say, oh, you, you jacked me up and, and, and I forgive you, and then later they do it again, and you say, now that's two times you've done that to me. What that proves is that you haven't forgiven that person. Well, that's not who our God is. God is abounding in grace and mercy. Incredible. If he were a three strikes God, Peter would have been sitting on the bench. Pastor Phil would be sitting on, we'd be done. We wouldn't be in it. Ultimately, Peter missed the boat in two ways here. He missed out on something bigger that was playing out here. Number one, in terms of Christian liberty, in terms of Christian freedom, he didn't understand the freedom he had when it comes to what he could eat, 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 33. As a follower of Jesus Christ, he could eat whatever he wanted. Now, obviously, you just don't get crazy and do stupid stuff, and you don't want to cause people to stumble and do things with your food or any practice. You're going to do all things to the glory of God, not to the glory of yourself or to harm others. But ham hocks were not off limits. He had Christian liberty. 
He's not bound by these dietary restrictions that were absorbed in the perfect Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill the law. You want ham and eggs? You're in me? Go for it. Number two, in terms of evangelism, and this is really critical. This is critical. In terms of evangelism, Peter didn't understand the broadness of his mission field. Okay? Well, there's unclean, and there's clean, and, there's, and I can only deal with the clean, and I, can't, I can only deal with those people that God has said so that meet these regulations in the Old Testament. I can't. He didn't understand the broadness of his mission field. He didn't understand the Lord's great commissioning to him, which is what? Go, therefore, and what? Make disciples where? Only in Palestine? Only in Jerusalem? Only in this? Only in the uncommon? Only in the places that are not common? Only in the places that are holy? Only in the land of purity? Is that what the Great Commission says? Absolutely not. It says go make them in all parts of the world. All four corners. Make disciples in the world from every tribe and tongue, from every ethnic background. See, he didn't understand the scope of God's salvific plan. That's the big point. He did not understand the broadness of his mission field. Somehow, all of those regulations put him inside of a perimeter. And I, can go, I cannot go outside of this perimeter is the way that his mind thought. Now let's move on to section two. It's pretty interesting stuff that's playing out here. Such is the word of God. If you never hear it expounded upon line by line, how do you learn these things? So I can't, I can't fathom any other mode of teaching. This is how. You, I don't want to get into that. I'll get on that soapbox. <laughs> section two, verses seventeen to twenty-five. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, <laughs> oh, he's got some turmoil going on on the inside. As Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, I love it, behold, look what happened, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry, inquiry, I hate that word, I can never just enunciate that, I got a lazy tongue, inquiry, for Simon's house stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. I love that. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, wow, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And then 23 ends up saying, so he invited them in to be his guests. Luke tells us in verse 19 that Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what his vision meant. I think he was wrestling with maybe the possible implications of the vision. He was probably saying to himself, was the Lord speaking about food or something else? What did Jesus mean? Did he say that I could eat anything I want? 
Did Jesus do away with the dietary regulations? Or was he using animals and food as a metaphor for something else? Peter was perplexed. He was up there trying to figure out what it meant. You know, he had it repeated to him three times, and then he kind of submitted in a way and just said, okay, I'm not going to keep questioning you. This is going nowhere. I'm losing. And so he's sitting up there going, now what exactly does it mean? What is the purpose behind this vision? These animals and clean and unclean and holy and pure, what does it mean? Is it about food? Is it about people? What is it? You know he was asking himself these questions. He was sitting on the roof trying to figure out what it all meant. And then the voices of Cornelius' men called out at the gate. Is one Simon who is called Peter lodging here? The text says that these men had made inquiry. This means that they went around Yopa, some people call it Joppa, went around Yopa asking people if they knew where Simon the Tanner lived. They went around town, they made inquiry, they went around town trying to figure out, we're looking, for, we're looking for a guy named Peter who was like the artist formerly known as Simon, and he's staying with a guy named, I know there's a lot of Simons, he's staying with a guy named Simon the Tanner. We're trying to figure out where Simon the Tanner lives, we're looking for Peter. Does anyone know where this guy lives? They made inquiry, they went around, they went around and asked questions, and finally were pointed to the right destination. They went all over the place trying to figure it out. And when they came across someone who actually knew who Simon the Tanner was, they got the directions and they went to his house and began to call out at his gate. Obviously his house, probably a nice house. He had a private gate and he's at the gate saying, Hey, is Peter here, one that used to be called Simon? They're asking these questions out there. Now apparently Peter could not hear them. In verse 19, it says that the Holy Spirit said to him, Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. This is really, really cool. You've got to pick up on this right here. In the midst of Peter's perplexity, the Holy Spirit was there. You see it? This is actually the role of the Holy Spirit. He is to come, it's literally his role to come, to indwell, and to discern and decipher and translate the truth in these sinful bodies. He is like the translator. You've seen these shows where you've got a guy over here going, speaking in a language, you've got a guy over here telling everyone what it is. He basically takes God's word and translates it so we can understand it. I'm not talking about God's word being in a weird language. He just takes it so, and makes it so that we can understand it. He illuminates us to the truth. And then he applies it deep within. It's actually his job to do it. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, No man can comprehend the thoughts of God except who? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Only the Holy Spirit can illuminate and educate us in the thoughts of God, the truth, because only He comprehends the thoughts of God. We heard from it today, Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The thoughts of God. The thoughts of God, the Word of God. 
is perfect and infinitely higher than all of the greatest thoughts of all of the greatest men combined. The greatest thoughts of all of the greatest men combined form nothing more than a rickety scaffolding that ascends no more than a thousand feet in the air. Their thoughts don't even reach the clouds. But God's thoughts are so high that we need the Holy Spirit because without him we cannot understand the truth. He guides us into all truth, Scripture says. He makes our dull minds understand. And he was present in the midst of the perplexity. And if you are in Christ, the Spirit is with you always. Not just when things are going good, but when life is perplexing. The Spirit is with you to comfort you and to teach you, to change you, to sanctify you, to transform you. And sometimes the Spirit gives us understanding at once he makes things clear. And sometimes he does it by leading us through a process and sometimes through the help of others. And that's what we see playing out. Peter cannot figure out what this vision means without Cornelius' men. The Spirit orchestrated things perfectly. Vision up there in Caesarea, vision down here, men coming to help Peter understand. Pretty amazing how God orchestrates things. But we need to be encouraged knowing that the Spirit is with us when we're in the midst of perplexity and difficulty. The problem is, is that our perplexity and difficulty is such a loud voice that we can't hear the still small voice of God. In the midst of perplexity, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial, in the midst of persecution, whatever it is where perplexity comes in, we cannot hear. Because our inner voice and, and the problems and all of the things are spiraling like a tornado. Let's keep in mind that Peter was up there praying. Well, he wasn't praying anymore. He was perplexed, trying to, oh gosh, what does it mean? But the Holy Spirit was there. And without this process that Peter's in, it's, it's just amazing. Without Cornelius' servants coming, I don't think that Peter would figure it out. They are the example that God sent to help him figure this thing out. The Spirit again said to Peter, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. What did Peter do? Sit there longer, ponder the vision? No, he got up at once and went downstairs to talk with them. And what did he say? He said, I am the one you're looking for. That's pretty bold because Christianity was despised in those days. You were a target. I'm the one you're looking for. Do your worst. He doesn't say that. I'm the one you're looking for. Peter was secured in Christ. He didn't have to hide or anything or protect himself. I am the one you're looking for, he says. And then he says, what is the reason for your coming? Why'd you come down here? In verse 22, they responded, Cornelius, this is great, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. This is the light bulb above the head moment right here. Peter gets it. Peter makes the parallel here. He noticed, here's the first thing that he noticed when he was talking to these men. He noticed that these men were not the kind of men he would normally associate with or minister to. First thing he notices, he recognized that they were Gentiles, or what he called earlier, what? Common. Remember the vision? These men are standing before him. He can tell they're not Jews. 
oh, I got some common guys standing here and they're talking to me and asking me to do something. His mind, the perplexity starting to go away. Uh-oh, the vision has something to do with common people. He recognized that they were Gentiles or what he would call common. When the servants described Cornelius and Cornelius' vision to Peter and then asked him to come to Caesarea to speak, he immediately put two and two together. He knew that the vision was about what? Making disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, bam, slammed him like a freight train. That's what the vision had to do with. This had nothing to do with food, maybe a little bit. This has to do with me opening my heart and mind to the very mission of God. That's what's going on here. He's starting to get it. It's clicking. Peter literally figured it out at once. And you want to know where the proof is in our text? The proof is in the text right there in the fact that he invited them in. Because no pious Jew would ever invite a common person into the house for fellowship. Never. It says in the text he invited them in to make them what? What does it say? Look at your Bible. His guests. That would never happen with the average Jew, especially with a pious religious one. That right there shows that he got the vision. He didn't say, I can't have anything to do with you. I can't associate with you. You're common men. He said, come in and be my guest. Pretty amazing. Now, last week I mentioned Last week I mentioned how Acts 10 marks a turning point, point in redemptive history. Salvation was about to come to the Gentiles. Remember, the previous nine chapters in Acts are all about what? Salvation to the Jews and salvation to the Hellenists, which are half Jews. 10 marks a turning point where God says, I'm going out into the world to save Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Mind-blowing thing taking place here in the text. That's what it's about. And it's amazing to think that before, check this out, it's amazing to think that before that could take place, before this new mission, before this new direction could take place, God had to first change the way his evangelist viewed people. That's what you see. Before this turning point could happen, before God would bring salvation to the Gentile people, to people like us, non-Jewish, he literally had to change the perspective and mind and heart of his evangelist. Literally. God had to expose Peter's prejudices and then convict him to put those prejudices to death before the gospel could be brought to Cornelius and his household and then where? To the rest of the world. This is a turning point here in the book of Acts. And it's amazing how God orchestrates it with a guy named Cornelius who doesn't know God. He knows God to some degree. He's religious, but he's not really in relationship. He's not doing it through Jesus. And then he takes Peter, who doesn't want to have anything to do with these kinds of people. This is how God, this is how you put your plan together? This is how it works out? Yeah, that's how he does it. What? Just two guys? Polar opposites? I just marvel at how God does stuff. It's unbelievable. He just takes yahoos like us. God had to expose Peter's prejudices and convict him so that the gospel could go forth, so that Peter would go up into Caesarea to preach the gospel, which would start something incredible that would begin to multiply and expand from that place, from Caesarea is where it really began for us. Boom, 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 throughout the whole world. And as I, you might recall too last week that I said this, 
we will not make a dent in this community for Jesus Christ until we become willing to go into forbidden places and associate with common or unclean people. In other words, we will not make a dent in this community for Jesus until we jettison our prejudices. We're not going to do jack squat here until we deal decisively with our prejudices. And you're thinking, I don't have any prejudices. Well, let's just go through a little test here and find out where you have some prejudices. Because I think we can find some. Because I didn't think I was a prejudiced type of person. I didn't think I was that way at all. I'm a pastor, for crying out loud. Then I started asking myself questions. I'm like, I suck. I have prejudices. I'm unwilling to minister to certain kinds of people. I'm no different than Peter, and neither are you. We will not make a dent in this community for Jesus until we jettison our prejudices. God has commanded, <laughs> he has commanded through our text that we are not to label and dismiss people based upon their ethnicity, based upon their beliefs, based upon their behavior. We should see people in either of two ways, lost and in need of Jesus or saved and in need of Jesus. Oh, the church doesn't need Jesus. They already have him. Are you kidding me? That's the way that we should view people, lost and saved. And both groups need Jesus. That's the bottom line. I need Jesus as much as a lost guy does. He's saving me daily. I know what he did on the cross. I know it's once and for all. But I've got to live in that reality every day. Lost and in need of Jesus and saved and in need of Jesus. And we are commanded in Scripture to evangelize the lost and build up the saved. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the mission of the church. That's the mission of the church. That's it. Now let's take a little quiz together to see if we have prejudices. Are you ready for this? Don't throw anything at me. I was beating myself with a shoe all week. <sighs> okay? Number one, do we label and dismiss people that hold different political beliefs than us? Wait a minute. Facebook is fun, but it's really bad, too. There's so much political jargon on there that I find myself just cursing in my soul people who see things differently than me, who might vote differently and uphold different values or whatever. I mean, it happens, right? Oh, it's natural. It's okay. No, it's not okay. Not if you're in Christ. You see, we have a mission. <laughs> and we will never meet our objectives through political means. Never. I've said this over and over and over and over. Republicans and Democrats do not care about the cause of Christ. There are some in both camps that do. But for the most part, politically speaking, they don't care about Jesus Christ and his mission in the church. They don't. Do we label and dismiss people that hold different political beliefs than us? Well, how's that? You're, yes, it's, it, you are being prejudiced if you look at people and dismiss them because of their beliefs. They're unclean politically. They're common Common sinners, oh, those Democrats, oh, those wealth-greedy Republicans. 
happens on both sides of the fence. Do we label and dismiss people that live in alternative sexual lifestyles? But, but, no, no but. Do you see them as some weirdo group out there that's beyond the love of Christ and, and, and they just make you so uncomfortable and it's difficult and you're just like, well, they can just do their thing and I don't want anything to do with them and they are the way that they are and you just label them as this and then you dismiss them according to that label and say, that's, that's them. I'm not prejudiced. Really? You don't do that? I'm prone to doing it especially when they, folks out there, threaten my rights. Since when are Christians supposed to be fighting for their rights? We fight for the kingdom of God. And sometimes that means relinquishing our rights, and submitting to the government, even though it's tyrannical. You don't have to agree with everything they say and teach. Do we label and dismiss people that live in alternative sexual lifestyles? Do we label and dismiss people because of their ethnicity? Because of their race. We have a growing population of Hispanics, Mexicans in our area. What are we saying about them? How do we view them? Well, I just had Do we label them? Do we dismiss them based on their ethnic background? Maybe we do it like in the Deep South. Racism is, is unbelievable there still. You just go to Tennessee. It's like, really? Do we label and dismiss people because they have a different theology than us? Well, you know, they're Arminian. Ah. Well, they're Calvinist. Well, they're some other ism. Can't think of any. Do you have any idea how much division there is in the church based on theological differences? We have 33,000 denominations. Hello. Well, you better follow Martin Luther. I thought we were following Jesus. Well, he's the next in line to Jesus. No, the Apostle Paul is. Now, come on. Do we label and dismiss people that have a different theology than us? And I can tell you, that's probably the area that I'm most guilty. Just being transparent. I got nothing to hide. I tend to do that. Do we label and dismiss people because of their religion? Well, those Muslims, they're going to blow up the world. Why don't you try blowing them up with the love of God? Why don't you introduce them to Jesus Christ? you find that you've crossed some lines in any of these areas? Could we not go on and on and on? It'd probably generate a thousand questions. The list could go on and on and on and on. And the truth of the matter is, is that God has called us to something much higher. God has called us to much something much, much higher. We have been commissioned. We have been commissioned as his soldiers to fight the good fight of faith. And the weapons we use are not the weapons of the flesh, 
not the weapons of this world. And our enemy is not the people of this world, but Satan. He's our mortal enemy. He's the one that we fight. He's the one that we go toe-to-toe with. He is the one. Do you want to see, and I think we will all agree, do you want to see crime, abortion, drugs, alcohol abuse, sexual immorality, and all the other destructive things in our community and world impacted in a positive way? Isn't that what you long for? You want to see those things go down or go away? Start fighting with prayer and the gospel. And begin with yourself. Pray for yourself. And preach the gospel to yourself so that you can become humbled. So that you can become prepared to intercede for others through prayer and to spread the gospel to others. In light of all of these things that we've heard, my prayer for us is that we would submit to the Lord just as Peter did. I pray that we would expel, jettison, get rid of, put to death our prejudices and align ourselves with the will and mission of God. As Christians, we not only have the ability to do this through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it should be our desire and our joy to do so. Amen.